Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I want people to reflect seriously on what they can do to set up their own voices or, you know, I mean, actually, I don't really want to use the word voice anymore. Our own bodies that will pursue our self-determination in the way that people decide at the local and regional levels. And government's just one element of that. Do that independently of government, not, you know, wait for government to come and say, well, we want to set up a regional or national or whatever voice and we'll do it this way. This is what we want you to do. I want our people to work that out for themselves. An Indigenous voice to Parliament fails at a referendum, truth-telling and treaty progress at the state level and the cost of living crisis bites. The year that was 2023. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. This past year has seen some important moments in First Nations affairs, but obviously the referendum for an Indigenous voice to Parliament is how we'll probably remember the past 12 months. Joining me to recap the year that was is Indigenous editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allam, and director of research at the Jambana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs. Lorena, you followed the referendum very, very closely, reporting on it every day. How did you interpret the result and did anything surprise you? The the result, I think we knew the result quite a long way out. Um, to their credit, the Yes campaign didn't give up. They campaigned right to literally to the end till the last polling booth closed. But I think the writing was on the wall very early on. So, um it came as no surprise, and I think hindsight's a wonderful thing, but to look back at that campaign, when the coalition announced that it was going to oppose the Yes campaign, that was pretty much all over at that point. I mean, so the valuable lesson that we have relearned is that it's very difficult to succeed in a referendum without bipartisan support. I think at the beginning, when they were polling 60% yes, and a sort of big, big number of those were soft yes voters. Um, that could have worked if there'd been bipartisan support and a concerted bipartisan push to educate people about what The Voice was really all about, what the Uluru Statement was all about, what, what, why this could was nothing to fear. But that didn't happen. And so the yes camp were really up against it from, from that point on. And I think that they were also up against a very concerted misinformation, disinformation and fear campaign that took hold very early and, you know, proved impossible to, to shift. Lyndon, what have been your observations about that? And particularly, what have you seen as the, the fallout from the result? Yeah, similar. I mean, I guess, you know, as a former political advisor, just the advising a new government to take on a progressive referendum in the first term, regardless of, of the content of that, would be advised against. Um, so I think it was a very ambitious sort of project by the ALP. I thought they could have probably, you know, just implemented it with a bit of legislation, let it run for a little while, and then, you know, it's a second, third term project, probably politically, but... Um, Going with that, it was interesting seeing the ebb and flow of opinion, and I, I went through that personally. Um, you know, listening to a lot of our people who were against the were against the voice for you know quite legitimate reasons, others not so. Um, and for me, I kind of ironically became more invested in it the closer it got to the actual referendum because I, I could sort of sense and feel the damage that, that a no vote was going to do. And also, ironically, because I knew it was going to go down. So it, it was a real sort of personally interesting period. Um, and one of the things I've been pleased about is that we've been able to talk to each other about that, about the way it's affected us. And I think that's made us stronger. But we, all, we probably all need a break at this time of year. But it did, you know, relight a fire in me and I know it did in others and sort of we'll be out of the gates next year back to, to doing what we do. I'm interested in you saying that, first of all, the the 
um, reflection on what the personal toll has been for the community, but also the fact that, you know, we need a bit of time and then next year be raring to go. Because I was wondering what your thoughts were, Lorena, perhaps on what Lyndon's just said in terms of how the community's feeling, but also it does feel like now that the referendum's been lost, that it, it it's not clear what the direction is at the national level. What are your reflections since you're reporting on this every day? So, I think there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. Certainly if you listen to the minister, Linda Burney, that's what she's been saying publicly, is that they are now looking... I mean, Albanese said during the campaign, there is no plan B. If the voice goes down, we won't legislate. That's the end of the road. Um, so I think the the thinking now is what do we do with the rest of the Uluru Statement, the Makarata Commission on Treaty Making and Truth Telling, there's, there's a growing support in the community that I see uh, to uh, for truth-telling and treaty-making. The treaty-making stuff's always been there. We've always called for that, you know, from when, like, when I was a kid in the 80s, this has been a call and it has not gone away. But the truth-telling is, is still very much alive as an option. But Linda Burney the other day was alluding on your program, Larissa, alluding to... Um, other things that she wants to, to look at, that this is not the only game, there are other things to look at. So I I think that they're developing this new direction in Indigenous affairs policy um, and we might see start to see some of that in the new year. But certainly if you listen to community people, truth-telling especially has become really important now because I think one of the things that became really clear during the referendum was how little the average Aussie knows about blackfellas, right? How poor their understanding is of us and our history. And so when when you see the voting, the yes vote was high among people who were educated and aware and who had some understanding of Aboriginal history. So I think the, the, um, the awareness raising, giving people a sense of why it's important, that why Aboriginal people want self-determination is, is probably the next phase uh, for, for us going forward. From your perspective, Lyndon, and you did mention you have been a political advisor, when you look at the fallout from the referendum, and we've talked about the impact on community, family mob, um, but just in terms of how it played out for the political leadership, what have been your observations? Yeah, well, it sort of had an immediate sort of chilling effect on what we would call progressive Aboriginal politics. Uh, there's a little bit of disruption in the Queensland process, a little bit of disruption in the New South Wales process, which I think is natural. And I know that in New South Wales, it's some work we've, we're involved with. And, you know, it was just felt that given how bruising that the year has been and that process in particular, you know, that, that Blackfellas weren't really up for a discussion about too much at all. Um, for the rest of this year. But like I said, that has sort of allowed us to go away and, and think about things a bit more in, in that regard. And more broadly, just in the work that we do, there's really been no interruption to that. There's been a whole range of other things that are going on. And I guess for the the broader work of, of what we and a lot of other black people do, it's sort of, as I said before, sort of strengthened our resolve in that to move towards a more a rights-based approach, which is not dependent upon a vote or the opinions of others. So I, I think the effect for us might be a harder-edged rights-based push for mm. our rights. And that's not dependent on people's sympathies or their ignorance or anything like that. It, it's going to be yeah, a much harder-edged um, political movement that I think will come out of this hope people can hear that fire in your belly there. Um, Lorena, you did mention the truth-telling processes as uh, something that's still a part of the national agenda, but it has been rolling out, um, particularly in Victoria. And I was wondering what your observations are about how that process is going when you've seen it come out in a practical way. Of course, you've been involved in some very big reports over the years. I've been thinking about your work on the Bringing Them Home reports. So truth-telling is a process you know really well, not just as a journalist. Um, so what do you see in terms of what those processes give to people who've engaged in them? 
I think the Victorian process is an interesting experiment and has been successful on some levels and frustrating to community people on another. So it has the power of a royal commission. It can uh, compel people to give evidence. It can compel people to provide documents. But I've come across some people who, from stolen generations um, who have expressed frustration that the Yurok isn't, isn't doing that as much as they could do. So there's always a challenge with truth-telling processes that the official process is not going to be uh, tailored enough to people's individual needs. There needs to be room for people to be able to express their personal truth as well as their experience of the system and of history. So uh, I think truth-telling is not always just a big process where you have people in a room listening formally to, to somebody with a with a kind of uh, a framework for that listening, that process is valid. But there are other ways to do truth telling, um, and that and that can often be very locally based, very organic truth telling that can often mean more to people or provide uh, provide some relief to them, as well as the formal process. So things like, like, for example, you know, the way that the mobs have come together over the Mile Creek massacre every year, and the way they have built a form of memorialisation, which is really appropriate, really embraced by all sides, that has taken years of work, but it's always been person to person. So that stuff is just as important as the big picture truth-telling and, in fact, can mean more to people because it's something that they feel empowered by and can get involved in, whereas it can be quite intimidating to sit uh, in a commission and give evidence to people you barely know and talk about intensely personal things. And you and there's still the, the question about where that information ends up and what comes from that. So when you talk about truth-telling processes like bringing them home, the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody was a truth-telling process as well. And part of the reason why the Uluru Statement was drafted, my understanding, is because those truth-telling processes fell on deaf ears. So you can have the most uh, important, significant, moving report into the stolen generations that goes very goes nowhere because the structures haven't uh, the structures don't change enough. So truth-telling has to be accompanied by some kind of justice for people. And if that can't be provided in the formal setting, then people feel like they are more able to reach some sense of justice when it's an interpersonal process that they are involved in locally. Lyndon, the other piece, of course, that you've also mentioned is the treaty processes that have started at the state level, particularly underway in um, Victoria and perhaps still on track in some ways in Queensland. How do you see those processes developing when there's been such a rejection of the voice to parliament nationally? And what do you think it might mean for the prospect of a national treaty? It does take, I think, a little bit of political resolve and uh, you know a bit of common sense with that. So, yeah, sure, you know, if the treaty... Uh, the referendum didn't work, then what are the reasons for that? What are the lessons we we take out of it? But as Lorena was saying, treaty discussions have been going on for decades, not centuries. Um, so that will just sort of keep going, I think. As I said, you know, the political um, environment will ebb and flow, um, just like a lot of other things. But, but our resolve, I think, has always been there for those discussions. Um, and like Lorena was saying, with truth-telling and treaty, there's, it's not a destination. There's a process within that. And one of the penny drop moments for me doing some work on truth-telling was that, um, you know, first and foremost, truth-telling is for us. It's not there to educate um, necessarily non-Indigenous people. If that's um, an implicit outcome, then then that's good. But that's really there for us. It's, it's one of our things. And so with the New South Wales treaty process, the commitment from the current government is for 12 months of discussion exclusively with Aboriginal people in New South Wales. It's not really canvassing anyone else's opinion. And it's sort of starting at a point, again, maybe lesson learned from the referendum, do you even want a treaty? You know, it mm. sort of takes a discussion right back um, so that Aboriginal communities are having these conversations without necessarily a destination in mind or being pressured 
into yeah. certain outcomes. And and so I'm really looking forward to that next year. Like I say, I think communities, you know, they'll they'll go away, lick their wounds, dust themselves off like they always do, and they'll be back ready, you know, to have these these big discussions. Well, it is our year in review, and we often give a bit of a report card to our representatives in Canberra. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the impact of the referendum, but of course there have been a whole lot of other issues that uh, the federal government has had to look at. Lorena, what kind of a report card would you be giving the Albanese government for 2023? I think it's a, it's a, it's a mixed card uh, in terms of the arts. Um, spectacular results for, for the arts community, I think. The the attention to the reform of arts in Australia is really exciting and long overdue. That it's backed up now by substantial funding to the institutions and, and organisations who desperately need it, that's the next challenge. Uh, in Indigenous affairs, I think we've seen the referendum go down. There's been a lot of pain and anguish in our communities who have been exposed to some terrible false uh, and malicious stereotypes about us, uh, very vulnerable people who feel even more marginalised. There's still a lot of work to be done in the child protection space, huge amount of work to be done in juvenile detention. Um, Those two things are deeply connected, as we all know. Um, Not necessarily a federal matter, but some federal leadership would help drive the states towards, you know, um, some reforms there. I think that in terms of cost of living, there's people are really unhappy that the the Albanese government hasn't, hasn't done enough to address people's cost of living concerns and housing. Uh, I think that, however, um, overall, I'd, I'd give them a solid B. You know, I'm, I, <laughs> it's, it's so far that my opinion matters about these things, but I feel like on a lot of issues that matter to me personally, um, they, they are heading in the right direction. I think people would be pretty happy with a solid B. What about you, Lyndon? Yeah, similar thereabouts, I think. Um, they, yeah, really came out of the gates with the international relations, uh, re-establishing relations in the Pacific in particular. Economically, it's kind of thereabouts. Uh, environmentally, kind of thereabouts. But um, in saying that, you sort of have to look back maybe three years, you know, to, to the death throes of the Morrison government. And there was you know, a scandal, a big scandal, pretty much every week um, that was suddenly coming up. Talk talk about who's going to the um, uh, newly established or going to be established um, ICAC, federal ICAC, um, and, and we just haven't had that kind we of We didn't level, have one either. <laughs> yeah, of disruption yeah. Um, with this government. So it does seem like there are adults in the room, but... Um, you know, there are high expectations of what a lot of people voted for, which was a progressive government, which was going to do these things. And, you know, you'd hate to think that after, uh, you know, particularly the referendum, that that that's going to, again, have a chilling effect on on more progressive um, politics. But, yeah, overall, a bit of a mixed bag, but... Um, they've got some time to do well, better. Well, for balance, of course, we better give a bit of a scorecard to the opposition. Is the opposition, and uh, I guess Peter Dutton led was very visible with the no campaign, so it probably could be seen as a bit of a win. And the High Court ruling um, against indefinite detention was obviously in his wheelhouse. As opposition leader, what kind of scorecard would you be giving him, Lyndon? Probably thereabouts. I think before before he was given something to literally get his teeth into, he was just flailing. Um, And we go back to, you know, the coalition government consistently goes back to what worked before. So it's what what Howard did or what Abbott did in opposition. So they just go back to that. So it's this attack politics. If they get a target, they'll go after it. And that's probably when they're at their best and when they're, you know, doing the most damage. But overall, that's not really what you're looking for in, uh, in an alternative government, but that's what they're good at. Lorena, at the last election with the um, election of so many Teal candidates, there was a lot of talk about politics being done differently. And I wonder from your perspective, if you're looking back, do you feel like there's been a shift? Um, not remarkably, I think that both sides, I mean, if there's Labor and, and the Coalition are much more um, aware of 
the Teals and what they think and say and do. They're certainly a force in Australian politics now, um, maybe permanently because um, certainly those those Teal seats were where people polled the highest yes votes for the Voice to Parliament referendum. So uh, in stark contrast, I guess, to Liberal voters. So it seems that those Teal electorates are shifting away from the Libs. But just in terms of the opposition, if his job is to oppose and to object, then certainly he's uh, he's been very active on that front. But I think what Lyndon said earlier is really important, which is that we're now in in the media, we're talking about politics and public policy again, rather than the poor behaviour or the pork barrelling or the scandals plaguing the, the ministry, which we were talking about very regularly under the previous government. So I think that... Um, while the opposition has been effective in scoring some points against the government and using the referendum to score points against the government has created a lot of social damage. So if his job is to oppose, then it's been remarkably effective. But my concern is how we heal those rifts. Well, speaking of divided countries, difficulties finding and keeping a Speaker of the House, an ex-president on over 90 charges, a lot of crazy things have come out of US politics just in the past year. What's been front of mind for you, Lyndon, as you've looked over at US politics? Um, what's been front of mind is this, um, that the Republic, Republican Party is basically not playing politics anymore. They have a strong belief that they need to rule, that they are born to rule, they know best. Because I, I, I remember, you know, progressive governments getting beat here and there and they're always sort of um, advised to go back and relook at their platform to, to make it more appealing to a larger group of voters. And the Republicans have not done one bit of work on their platform. They have spent it seemingly their entire approach seeing how they can manipulate um, the vote to get their people back in. I've not seen any sort of introspection about their platform appealing to younger voters. Um, instead of appealing to younger voters, they just try to make it harder for younger voters in, instead of appealing to black voters, make it harder for black people to vote. So they've really, to me, changed the whole nature of that. You know, they're stuck with Trump. There's a part of them that want to get away, but he's inevitable, it would seem. Uh, my goodness, it's, uh, it's going to be a really important election. What are your reflections, Lorena? And I'm also interested, obviously, when you were following the referendum debate, did you see much of the seeping in of American-style mm. politics there? Mm, I did. And so the way Lind Lyndon's describing what's happening in the States, that certainly was present to a greater extent during the referendum campaign. And my personal concern is that that, that style of politics is now quite embedded in Australia. Um, the Fair Australia campaign against the referendum had all the hallmarks of a very Trumpian campaign where you, you, don't, you don't engage in debate, you don't engage with the principles or the facts, you, you just pepper the market with misinformation, you can exaggerate things. You, by the time someone's called out your lie, you're on to the next one. And using social media to, to seed that stuff is very Trumpian um, behaviour. And so I think there's been uh, a strengthening of that sort of politics in Australia thanks to the referendum campaign that they ran, that they saw an opportunity to do exactly that with the referendum. So it wasn't really about a yes or no for Indigenous people. It was more about kind of strengthening their presence and, and a kind of tactics in Australia. So, yeah, there are parallels. And I look at America and, and I see, I think if we discussed the politics of the US without telling people, we would think about the US being like a crazy failed state because these are the things that happen in, in countries that are sliding slowly into disarray or into, you know, some neo-fascism. Well, we have to leave on a, on a high note. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you both what your highlights were, a positive highlight of 2023 and what you're most looking forward to in 2024. Lyndon? Mm. Um, look, a personal highlight, I'd been holding out under immense pressure from the family for a dog. And we finally, <laughs> I finally succumbed and oh, I love got it. a uh, Jackawawa, Jack what? Russell Chihuahua cross Oh puppy. my goodness. Um, <laughs> and the... it's been great. And I'm glad that I've got the puppy. Does um, the puppy have a name? 
Dottie. Dottie. Oh, oh gorgeous. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to a break and, and, you know, really getting stuck in next year. To me, I think um, the environment has been clarified for us in terms of our rights and where we stand within the country and the things that we're after and, you know, going to be energised and ready to go with that. Lorena? I think going out on country a few weeks ago um, and being on Yualarai country, our native title determination country was really nourishing and it was at a time when I was feeling, I know we all were feeling just so shattered after the referendum. So, it, you know, being on country really is a good thing to do. It's good for your spirit. So that was a highlight. And cuddling a newborn baby yesterday, uh, my good friend and colleague had her, her, a baby daughter this week and just look, holding that newborn baby was just wonderful. And 2024, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to some healing for our mob next year. Um, I know that there's been little pockets of it here and there, but I really am keen to look at how people are recovering from this referendum and how our mob are looking after each other. Well, thank you both for your thoughts on the year uh, that's been and optimism for the year ahead. Um, And also thank you. You've obviously been two people that we very much rely on for commentary through the year and particularly to do things like this today. It always brings so much wisdom and insight with all your experiences. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. My guests have been Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allam, and Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABC RN, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. It's been a year of highs and lows in Indigenous affairs. Auntie Pat Turner has worked to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for over half a century. She says despite the referendum result, the focus should remain on creating better outcomes for First Nations people. I'm gonna 
That's one of my favourite bands right now, King Stingray. The song is called Get Me Out and is from their self-titled album released last year. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. It's become a tradition on Speaking Out to end the year by asking one of our most revered elders about her thoughts on the year that's been. Auntie Pat's Year in Review gives us a chance to delve into the big issues from someone who's been in the middle of it. Auntie Pat, welcome back once again. This has been quite a year, so it's a real privilege to have your insights since you've been right in the thick of many of the things we're going to analyse. The most significant moment in Indigenous affairs this past year has no doubt been the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. You were deeply involved in the design of it. How did you read the referendum result? I don't really think it's right that Aboriginal people are asked to explain it or to say what went wrong because really we only make up 3% of the population and somehow it assumes that, you know, by me explaining it, that we were at fault and that it was our responsibility to educate all the Australian people who were to vote to convince them about why we should have a uh, constitutionally protected voice. And I think, you know, there are a lot of others who were responsible for that. But what I do know is so many of our people are now grieving and struggling to understand their place in our own country, and that's really bad. But in this grief, as I said previously, it is important that our young people really know that they are so loved and that they should be so proud of their Aboriginal identity. I know I hugged my grannies a little tighter in the last few weeks and we all must continue to do that. Oh, those are some very good words. I know how downcast many people have been and I think that sort of messaging will mean a lot. Where do you think things will go from here? Well, we know that Aboriginal people overwhelmingly voted for a voice. You know, we voted for change and to improve our life outcomes. And I, as the lead convener of the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community-Controlled Peak Organisations and as CEO of NACHO, remain resolute in my commitment and dedication to bring about the change our communities voted for. And that's the change in our life outcomes, where our people have a real say in shared decision-making. And so with the Coalition of Pegs, I'm squarely focused on the full implementation of the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. I want to see all governments fully implement the National Agreement that we have on Closing the Gap so that we can see shared decision-making between governments and our communities and organisations on matters that impact on us and so that we can get funding going directly to our communities and our organisations that deliver much better services to our people. We have the political support for the National Agreement, Larissa, including bipartisan support, and really, we just need to get on with it. Let me ask you a few more things just digging into that, because obviously now that's a key agenda. What needs to happen next with closing the gap? Well, I've written to the Albanese government on behalf of the Peaks, with some proposals on how they could accelerate their efforts on closing the gap post the referendum. Central to the proposals we have provided to the government is that we need funding to get to our communities urgently. And I want to see this happen in two main ways. First, I want to see a closing the gap fund established, set up by the Commonwealth where state and territory governments can also contribute. You know, we haven't had a huge injection of support to support Closing the Gap since 2008 when it was around $5 billion. That fund would support community-driven and led initiatives to close the gap. And in line with the National Agreement on Closing the Gap, decisions would be made through shared decision-making arrangements at the community level between government and our representatives. Secondly... We need to make sure that the really big funding agreements between the Commonwealth and state and territory governments in areas like housing, education and health are doing much more for closing the gap. So these are ongoing agreements where the Commonwealth gives all this money to the states and the states generally just do what they want to do with it and there's very little transparency. So some funding in these arrangements needs to be squarely directed at closing the gap. This is what the National Agreement says, and we need transparency, as I said, over all the funding so we can see how it is being spent. 
Now, the recently announced National Skills Agreement is the first agreement of its kind to represent the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. And we need to see this much better improved in the housing and homelessness and the schools reform agreements that are now being negotiated. So the National Agreement will also be resigned, re-signed by the National Cabinet to demonstrate their ongoing commitment. And I am hopeful that at the same time, National Cabinet can commit to ensuring funding from the big mainstream agreements that will definitely reach our people. I'm also hopeful that a new Closing the Gap Fund can be developed and then announced with the annual Closing the Gap Statement in February next year. So they're the proposals that I'm wanting to see uh, put forward, uh, come to fruition. From your perspective, Arnie Pat, why has progress been slow on the national agreement? Yes, the wheels of bureaucracy churn ever so slowly. (laughs) (laughs) It is important, I think, to note, though, that there has been some significant progress and reform underway because of the national agreement and the negotiations of the coalition of PECs. So we have established shared decision-making arrangements in all states and territories where our community-controlled representatives are sitting down with senior government officials to agree what steps are needed on closing the gap. In the Territory, in the Northern Territory, our peak organisations are negotiating with the Northern Territory and Commonwealth Government on the next phase of investment in remote communities. This is the funding that initially came with the intervention, the dreaded intervention, which we remember very well. We sure do. And uh, it will be the first time our leaders are at the table with government having a say on what the money should be spent on and how. In New South Wales, our community-controlled organisations are working on doing this with the government to make sure all community-controlled organisations are able to negotiate directly with their funding bodies, you know, so that's good and make sure that they can all participate in these shared decision-making arrangements with governments. This is not just for members of the Coalition of Peaks. This is for all Aboriginal people to, and Torres Strait Islander people to take on when they're contacted by government or they're contacting government to try and get support, you know. So at the Commonwealth level, I have to say that we, the Peaks, have been doing the heavy lifting to ensure our people are properly supported by big funding agreements and arrangements including the Housing Australia Future Fund, the Housing and Homelessness National Agreement and the Social Housing Accelerator Fund. Now, these funds and agreements have billions of dollars in them. And so far, only 200 million out of those billions has been earmarked for refurbishment of Aboriginal housing. This is simply not good enough, Larissa. Housing is an absolute priority for our people. And I'm really so proud and commend the people of Santa Teresa for the recent High Court's decision on housing. This decision makes it clear that governments need to be doing so much more on housing and accord the priority to Aboriginal housing because we were the people who took the initiative to take that matter to the High Court. The Coalition of Peaks are also developing with the Commonwealth uh, proposals to ensure these funds contribute fully to closing the gap And I want National Cabinet to deal with this matter in December this year. Well, they're on notice now, Aunty Pat. They are, darling, yes. (laughs) How do you think the government will respond to the post-referendum proposal? Well, reform takes time, as we know, and the Coalition of Techs are doing the heavy lifting at the moment. In addition to the work in each uh, jurisdiction, the Coalition of Techs have been meeting with the cabinets of every state and territory this year to ensure all governments and every minister understands their obligations and commitments under the Closing the Gap Agreement and can work through any issues with us in partnership. So I am hopeful also that the Coalition of Peaks will present to the Commonwealth Cabinet shortly, jointly with Minister Burney. So we really need the Commonwealth to step up and make some significant change to the way they work and commit some serious funding. But what I do want all the listeners to hear and remind them is, after the 67 referendum, we all expected the Commonwealth to take a clear leadership role in Aboriginal affairs. And they did, but they also had this thing about having all these, you know, 
grey agreements with the states and so they could buck pass when it came to responsibility for doing this and that. And they're, they're doing that and that worsened under the coalition government for the 10 years at uh, the Commonwealth level. But I really think that we can see a change uh, coming with the seriousness of the Albanese government. So I think he will do what is needed, the Albanese government. I think the Prime Minister went to the referendum to give our people a voice and he wouldn't have done that if he wasn't committed to seeing improvements in the lives of our people right across the country. What should happen next with the Uluru Statement, Aunty Pat? Well, everyone's talking about, you know, the government needs to set up regional and local voices, but I think we need to do that ourselves. I'm really serious about this. Why do we only react when the government, you know, wants us to react to give the government advice? Why can't our people just set up their own local and regional voices? Because they've got many issues that have to be dealt with for communities to grow and prosper than just giving the government advice. There's lots of different uh, stakeholders that they could engage with. So I really want to see our people set up their own forums where they can work out issues of importance to our people. That's the first thing I want to see. And if they need money, well, they can go to the big companies and the philanthropics and get money. But don't don't just be there to, you know, advise a government. It's not the only thing that our people should be doing. They should be exercising their full self-determination and having our own voices run on our terms and not let the government take them over by just relying on that process. I mean, if the government wants advice, they can pay for the negotiations for that advice. But I also think it's very important that there is a proper process to bring Aboriginal people together to agree what happens next on the Uluru Statement. And that was always more than a voice. It is clear, in my opinion, from the referendum outcome, that Australia needs a truth-telling process on our collective history and on the constitution itself, how it works and how it was developed. So a civil, a civic education campaign um, for all Australians and also all Australians need to, you know, know about a truth-telling process and, and what the real truth of the history of this country is. You know, of course, what form that all takes should be a negotiation between the government and the community reps, and that's going to take time. But in the meantime, Larissa, I think we urgently need to get on with closing the gap and I want to see funding of our communities hitting the ground now. That's the most important thing. That's where the change is going to be noticed and must be noticed because we can't have our people in 2023 still living in third world conditions right throughout Australia, not just in remote areas. There's parts of New South Wales that are appalling housing for our people and in other places around the country. So, you know, I don't just talk about remote, but I know the urgency of remote because the services are so scarce out there, you know. So that's what I think needs to happen. Well, Arnie Pat, you've worked at the heart of Indigenous affairs for decades and you've seen some highs and some lows. How do you reflect on the state of the sector currently and are you optimistic at this moment? (laughs) That's a hard question <laughs> to answer after the disaster of the referendum. Yes, but you've got lots of um, ideas and a plan. We do. We do, darling. And that's, you know, the resilience of our people, isn't it? I have optimism in our resilience. I have optimism in our culture and our, and the strength that we draw from that. I do want to our people to... Um, reflect on those strengths from our old people and from our culture and from our families and, you know, show the respect and the courtesy to each other and the love, you know. I am optimistic uh, because we can't afford not to be, you know. I think, you know, as long as we've got the Albanese government, we will be on a better pathway, let me say that. 
You've already given us some great pearls of wisdom and some lovely messages, but each year when we've done Arnie Pat's Year in Review, you've ended with a lovely message for our listeners, and I wondered if there were any other words you'd like to share with them. Yes. Well, of course, I'd like to wish everybody a very safe and happy festive season. You know, it's the time to really share the love amongst our families, and I'm dead serious about that. We can't allow tensions and and, you know, things that happened years ago to disrupt uh, what should be a nice, peaceful and joyous time to spend with our families and especially our children, you know. I want that. I want people to reflect seriously on what they can do to set up their own voices or, you know, I mean, actually, I don't really want to use the word voice anymore because I think it distracts, you know. I think, though, our own self-determination bodies... Uh, our own bodies that will pursue our self-determination in the way that people decide at the local and regional levels, you know, and government's just one element of that. And do that independently of government, not, you know, wait for government to come and say, well, we want to set up a regional or national or whatever voice and we'll do it this way. This is what we want you to do. I want our people to work that out for themselves. But I do want to say that our strength of character and our determination to achieve the justice and the human rights and a fair go in our own country is what we're all striving for and we should remember that in the work that we continue to do in the years ahead. And I hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas and New Year, love. Arnie Pat, thank you so much for all the energy and strength you've brought to all of the important work you've done this year. It's been a heck of a year in Indigenous affairs and you've been, as I said, right there in the middle of it. You've done it with grace, with dignity and with such wisdom. You give us all strength. Thank you so much for everything you do and for being with us on Speaking Out. Well, thank you. And for the excellent radio program that you run, Larissa, which I listen to uh, with great uh, anticipation and I just find it so interesting the amazing people that you get on and what we learn from those interviews so I really appreciate that too. Thank you Arnie Pat that means a lot to us you take care. Thank you love bye. That CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Nacho, and Chair of the Coalition of Peaks, Aunty Pat Turner. We'll leave you with some more music. This one is from Troy Cassadaly and it's called Shadows on the Hill. I see shadows on the hill Up beside the old sawmill Where my people were killed I see shadows on the hill I see shadows on the ground Where the bones don't make no sound Hidden so they can be found I see shadows on the ground on the old Glen Ennis Road Where the great man river flows Men, women, children slain Buried up there on that range I woke up in the dead of night Saw two men in the firelight They had scars across their chest Said their spirits cannot rest They spoke to me in tongue I answered back at very once Never spoke that way before I am not a man by law but I see shadows on the hill Up beside the old sawmill Where my people were killed I see shadows on the hill 
where the catfish makes its ring and the birds refuse to sing. Voices follow family lines as they whisper through the pines. And around the granite stones, they'll forever be alone. Their killers got off free, but their shadows never leave. See shadows on the hill Up beside the old sawmill Where my people were killed I see shadows on the the show for now. Be sure to join us over our summer break as we revisit some of our most important conversations of the past year. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.